0: When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country? The truth lies west. Discover yours at
1: TravelWyoming.com. Hello, friends.
2: Hey. hey. Hello. <laughs> hey.
1: Uh, so today, here in the studio are all of my colleagues, Justine Paradise. Greetings. Taylor Quimby. Hello. Erica Janik. Hi. And the newest addition to the team, Sarah Ernst.
3: Yo. Yo. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm curious to know, Sarah, how you feel about being roped into our shenanigans.
3: Um, A little nervous. I've never done it before. (laughs) You're a natural.
1: Okay, I have a story for you all. Uh, This story begins with
4: the uh, Energy Policy and Conservation Mm -hmm. Act of 1975. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Woof. That specified fuel economy standards. That specified the, the famous CAFE standards for motor vehicles.
2: Woof! <laughs> Are you familiar with this? You sound like woof, like you really knew what that was.
4: <laughs> I am familiar
1: with the CAFE standards. Uh, so the CAFE standards we're actually still fighting about today. So that's that's basically the law that says cars need to be x efficient by x year
2: nothing to do with lattes nothing
1: to do with cafes uh that by the way is david green uh who is formerly of the oak ridge national laboratory but has since retired from government science and is just a research fellow at the university of tennessee and when i emailed him asking him about this story his response was this isn't very interesting (laughs) (laughs)
5: what a great setup to an episode of outside in just
1: wait So back when they had first enacted these fuel efficiency standards, there was a clause in the law that said not only are we going to test these cars to make sure that you're, that you're hitting your goalposts for efficiency, but we're also going to make that testing
4: data public.
6: It was a printed guide that uh, dealers
4: were required to have available and on display in their showrooms. And they hated it. You know
1: those stickers on the sides of car windows that have the the mileage on them. Yeah, they didn't have to have the the mileage on on it until 2007. So all the way from 75 until 2007, if you wanted to know the mileage of your car, you had to find this poster that was mandated by law to be somewhere in the showroom. But so the, when you say that the dealers hated it, what did that what did that mean? Does this mean that like they'd put it up in the showroom, but then there'd be like a bunch of balloons in front of it, kind of thing? <laughs>
4: uh well that's not that's not off base <laughs> <That's> not, <laughs> um the compliance was uh spotty <laughs> you know maybe fifty percent <laughs> less, something like that
0: Is it just because like people don't want to know? I mean,
1: like, I want to know what the, you know, how efficient my car is. Yeah, but you're not selling cars, Taylor.
5: Is this like calorie counts on menus?
1: Exactly. Oh. So If, like, your car comes out really badly on the test, they don't want to be like, our car.
5: Want to spend a million dollars on gas? Get this one.
1: (laughs) 12 miles per gallon. So, in the late 90s, David and his colleagues at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory were like, well, there's this thing coming up called the Internet. Maybe we could just like put it up, put them up online, you know? How's the story doing so far, by the way? Government government bureaucrats discover the internet, build a website. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, I've got this crazy idea.
1: I'm feeling the buildup. And it's actually not a bad website. So it's fuel economy.gov. Fuel economy. Oh,
2: that's gov. catchy.
1: Yeah. And and it's, you know... It looks like a healthcare website. And, like, right there, you can find and compare cars. You can click that, and you can, you can like, look up the...
2: Should I look up my car? Yeah. 2013 Prius.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or should I look up something Is else? This just a flex right now. <laughs> well, okay, so the point... <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a very functional, like not terrible website built by by sort of like, you know, good government folks. Yeah. That, that cost, by the way, like a couple hundred thousand dollars, which, which you know, maybe sounds like a lot of money, but in terms of the federal government's budget is, is a minuscule amount. Um, so they threw up this website and then they decided that they wanted to evaluate how good a job is the website doing? How much gas are they saving by putting this information out there? So they crunched the numbers and it was like a billion gallons of gas.
2: Is that a lot? <laughs>
1: it's like a huge pool of gas.
2: <laughs> I just I don't know what like relatively speaking like how much is it?
1: Yeah, so so to put it in context, it's it's about the same as taking every gas-burning vehicle in the United States off the road for almost an entire day for just putting up a website. The point of this story is that is that I lo- I just love how how simple and small and elegant it is. And obviously like in, in order for this to work, like there there's this whole infrastructure that has to exist beforehand. You have to pass a law that like mandates more efficient cars, the manufacturers have to step up and actually make the more efficient cars, but if you never do this last step, it's just like it's like you're just leaving that on the table, that billion gallons of gas that people would have ostensibly burned because they just wouldn't have known. Yeah. Yeah. So, my challenge for you all should you choose to accept it is to find other instances of this in which a small act, the more insignificant the better, had some sort of profound impact that that one would be surprised to hear about on a podcast. Can mine be fictional. <laughs> <laughs> This is Outside In, and today on the show, a battle of tiny proportions. We're calling these nudges, a nod to the famous nudge division of the British government. It's a series of small events, inventions, or happenstance, that had outsized impacts on the environment, maybe. Or maybe not. Just stick around. There will be pirates. We've gone off, we've called the people, we've found the stories, I assume. I have actually no idea what's going on.
2: <laughs> it's been several weeks. Yes, time has people passed. People have emailed. And
1: I, and I take it that Taylor is going first because he has a bunch of props that he's arrayed
0: here in front of us. Quite right. Uh, and, and that's because I wanted to start my nudge presentation with a very basic lesson in physics. You guys Ready? physics. Maybe. Sam, you've got a prop in front of you. It's a heavy book and there's a string attached to it. And I just want to get a sense of, you know, how much effort does it take to pull that book with the string? Okay, I'm going to try.
1: So, okay. So, you you know, you it obviously. It moved. Yeah, it moved. But it took, but like the, the elastic string that you've got in here stretched quite a lot. Like I had to pull it almost all the way to my body before the book would slide.
2: It's inefficient.
0: Right. Now you'll see in front of you, there is a jar of batteries. They're all dead batteries from our field uh, recording kits. I want you to take like four of them and put it underneath the book. Okay, 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 okay. And batteries. tell me how smoothly that rolls. Ooh, Ooh.
1: Ooh
0: that was dramatic. Was it- oh, they're all falling <laughs> off. So the thing I'm trying to illustrate here is one that's pretty obvious. You guys should know this. And that is that rolling is more efficient than (laughs) sliding, right? That's what outside is here for. That's
2: right. Learned that when I was like five years old. Fair,
0: (laughs) fair. So this is, after all, why the wheel is considered one of the most foundational, important inventions in all of human civilization. Um, But I just want to point out uh, that we don't always put wheels on things and push those things around. Sometimes we fix wheels in place And we use them to move things over them. Like we use them as rollers, right? Instead of wheels. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Okay, so for example, the ancient Egyptians, um, they're trying to move huge blocks of limestone to build the pyramids, right? They don't put wheels on the blocks. (laughs) They put logs under the blocks and they roll them across. Now, (laughs) this is a basic concept that humans have utilized, as I'm pointing out, for thousands of years. It wasn't until 1794 that someone put a patent on a small invention that allowed humans to, I think, perfect the wheel, perfect rolling, so that it could become the way of the future. Does anybody want to guess what that invention is?
2: Rolling is the way of the future. I
5: know, that's so portentous.
2: A
0: grassy hill in a meadow. And if you can all uh, put your eyes this way.
3: No way. Fidget spinner. Fidget spinner? Okay, so my thing is,
0: (laughs) it is not actually a fidget spinner. It's the thing that allows fidget spinners to spin It is the ball bearing. Mm -hmm. So to help make my case, I talked to this guy, Bill Farr. He's divisional training manager at a place called New Hampshire Ball Bearing.
4: It really allowed them to make machines that turn at high speeds, automobiles and planes and helicopters and that kind of thing. So without bearings, none of that would exist. One of the big things that when you watch World War II movies is that they bomb bearing manufacturers. Because if you don't have bearings, you can't have planes flying.
5: Is a ball bearing really a machine? Yeah, yeah.
1: Simple machines. A is a
4: machine. So ball bearings,
0: they're simple machines. They allow us to do incredible things. And they're based entirely off the same idea that helped the Egyptians move blocks of limestone. Uh, but instead of logs, there are these little metal balls. And instead of putting them on the ground, you put them in circular tracks called raceways because they actually sort of look like a little round racetrack. And then you fit them between two things that you want to rotate smoothly with as little friction as possible and bang. That's your ball
4: bearing. So if you have a wheel that turns on a bike or a skateboard or a rollerblade, um, the bearing is inside of that wheel that helps it turn smoother. Boom,
1: bang,
5: bam, swish, bingo, bango.
4: But like I said, these bingo bango. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but like I said, these things are so important uh, to our mechanical lives. Um, it's not just like. Rollerblades and skateboards that I had to sign an NDA just to visit this ball bearing factory. <laughs> a a non disclosure agreement. It's like you and Stormy Daniels. <laughs> 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 well, and I was like, I was like, why? I mean, isn't this machine like incredibly basic? Why would I have to sign an NDA? And it's because it goes into all of these very complex, often like military applications, like planes and helicopters, and the size, the custom sized fit. Would matter into the design of those those you know machines, and so like they don't want me selling information to like China or Russia. This
2: was like a matter of national security going into the ball bearing factory.
0: Well, that's that's what it felt like. I also had to watch a training um, safety video. Really? Yeah. (laughs) yeah.
1: (laughs) What did it say? I was like, you know, it's like wear wear high protection.
0: I mean, you know, don't stick your hand into the machine. Right.
4: There's a stone in there that rotates. Spits them back out, they'll keep cycling for eight or nine hours.
0: But what's totally nuts is if you think about, you know, what do these do? They make machines more efficient. They have to be perfectly sized in order to do this because they have to bear weight incredibly evenly. And so in order to smooth them down to the
4: levels that they need to smooth them down to put them in like something like an airplane. Um, The ones that we manufacture here are the same size within 10 millionths of an inch.
1: Wow. That sounds like a
4: lot. It's a lot. It's like... It's pretty tight. And some of these are so small that they're like, the the
0: whole ball bearing, not just the balls inside of it, are like a little bit bigger than a poppy seed.
1: What? Wow.
4: And that would go into stuff like dental drills, that kind of
6: thing. Yeah.
0: They also uh, get finished, like the part where they get put together, all the pieces, is in a clean room, the same way that you would see a clean room for the building of a satellite. Everybody's in all white. They have to wear hair caps. They have to like you know, go through some sort of process before they go in there. Because even a hair inside the racetrack of this little ball bearing could throw off, you know, its smoothness and efficiency. And that's the whole point of what it does. But, you know, I, I mean, the pointing is that the the ball bearing is this, like, it, it is neither good or bad, um, but it has increased the power of the good and bad things in the world. So in one way, the ball bearing is tied to all the forces that have led to a climate crisis, Um, you know, automobiles and industrialization. But it's also a part of the thing that might help us get out. So if you look at this fidget spinner vertically, does this look like anything?
1: (laughs) (laughs) A windmill? Yeah, a wind turbine. I mean, so the thing that's funny to me about your takeaway here, Taylor, is that so there's this economic idea called Jevons paradox that says that more doing things more efficiently just enables more consumption, which, you know, like that's not necessarily bad. Consumption can be kind of like a proxy for well-being, but but it also, you know, maybe not. And that's something we just need to think about really hard yeah. here. Yeah. I'll tell you what. I'm going to I'm going to wrap
0: up just to really stamp my case with a quick list of things that could not exist without the ball bearing. The longest list you can give me. Every single product that you can think of. Okay.
4: So you've got things like planes. Wouldn't exist. Helicopters. Wouldn't exist. Automobiles. Wouldn't exist. um, The arms on robots. Wouldn't exist. Motors. Any type of fan that goes into a computer or a projector. Wouldn't exist. We had bearings that (laughs) went into the space shuttle toilet. Wouldn't exist. Any type of tape recorder would have bearings in it. You wouldn't have a job. Fidget spinners. (laughs) Heart pumps. One of the big ones that people don't think about is when you go to the dentist and you're getting a cavity filled. um, That drill... Is has bearings on it that we manufacture.
2: So what's your point? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs>
4: I'm just saying, the ball bearing, it gives us all the stuff.
6: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, 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 great, great. <laughs> Taylor Quimby.
1: Taylor Quimby, ladies hmm. and gentlemen.
3: About. Who's next? Sarah's next.
1: Sarah's next.
3: Okay. Okay, so no surprise to anybody who works around here, but I've been thinking... A lot about sex lately. <laughs> true? <laughs> not true? <laughs> and why is that for those who don't work here? <laughs> um, it's because uh, fellow producer Jimmy Gutierrez, who's not here, sad. Um, we're working on an episode about sex ed for our other NHPR podcast, The Second Greatest Show on Earth. Oh. Yes, shameless plug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I found myself steeped in just 50 open tabs researching the condom.
1: Hey. <laughs> And this is the kind of research you prefer to do not at the office. Right. It's like... Oh, it's safe for work. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, not. Well,
3: all right. Let's continue. No, <laughs> and I'm talking specifically about how the latex condom was an unexpected, inexpensive, depending how you slice it, and really important piece to the technology of the age-old condom. Okay, I'm going to hit you with a couple of facts about condoms before the notorious latex rubber. And I got most of this information from Anya Collier's book, The Humble Little Condom, A History. (laughs) The condom that could. Um, So the first condom is is thousands of years old. And for most of its history, condoms were made from the intestines of sheep. Um, They were made to be reusable. People washed them out, hopefully thoroughly, and used them again. Now, we're just going to skip a couple thousand years. uh, (laughs) (laughs) So in the 1850s, um, that's when the rubber condom finally hit the market. But this iteration, it was tough and uncomfortable and generally unpopular. Um, The main appeal was that they were durable. They just weren't going to break. And the technique they used, which is called vulcanization, was just an insane manufacturing process. It was essentially treating crude rubber with sulfur and intense heat. And that made the rubber more malleable to work with and durable. But you can imagine just the terrible side effects for these poor workers dealing with sulfur, just eyes burning, dizziness, convulsions, back pains. And these rubbers, they were just never as popular as the skin variety.
1: Is this why they were called rubbers?
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, next stop on the condom train. (laughs) We meet Julius Schmidt, who innovated this. He was living in New York at the turn of the 20th century. He discovered this dipping method in the 1910s that made rubber condoms stronger and thinner, more sensitive, and they could last up to five years. But these rubbers were also manufactured in a crazy way. The dipping technique required gasoline or benzene to be added to the liquid rubber, and that would make the process just really... Dangerous. It's just a big old fire hazard. Um, I also want to mention my favorite facts about Julia Schmidt, which is that he fell into condom manufacturing. I thought you were going to say he fell into a condom manufacturing, like the pit. died. He fell into condom manufacturing by way of the sausage casing business. <laughs> no, no, really? <laughs> I know it sounds absolutely oh, fake, like, but oh. the two industries are actually related. Oh my God. <laughs>
0: Well, like the same <laughs> machines that like make that. the casing they be like an r- easy transition
3: it's mostly the materials oh. okay this probably won't make it in but another crazy fact it's just people th- there would be recipes going around just like bootleg recipes and people would go to their butcher and they would just ask for like some raw materials but they'd just be like oh I'm making sausages at home and they would go home and make their own condoms out of sausage casings oh my god <gasps> <laughs>
0: has to make it in <laughs> Wow. That's kind of awesome because people were like trying to have birth control. You know, they were like, they're like, screw this. I want to have sex and I don't want to have a baby. And I'm not going to let the lack of a condom stop me
3: from making my own. yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. But skin condoms were still number one. Well, that's until latex came onto the scene. And now in 1920, the latex condom was invented. Latex is rubber dispersed in water. And it's the kind of condom we're more familiar with today. It has the largest market share in the condom industry. Latex can stretch thin. It's durable. It's mass manufacturable and does not cause factory fires. (laughs) I'm realizing that I just did not know what latex was. Me too. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) So I spoke with Linda Gordon, professor at NYU, and she once wrote a book on the history of birth control politics in the U.S. The shift to rubber or the shift to latex. How important was that to the history of the condom?
7: It was hugely important because it took a condom from being a very clumsy, very scarcely used method of contraception to a massive one. You know, one of the reasons that men didn't want to use condoms is that it interferes with their pleasure. So the fact that you could get something very thin, but also not easily ripped, those two things were just enormously important.
3: And so now we get to Sam's challenge, something small and expensive or unexpected. So here's my case. It was inexpensive in some ways. So latex helped companies save on productions in terms of insurance costs. But I must admit that latex was more expensive than other previous rubber methods. But comparing latex condoms to skin condoms, which composed most of of, uh, the condom's history and other forms of contraception, it was a cheaper material.
7: As you can imagine, it was probably very hard to find a decent skin condom and expensive. Furthermore... Diaphragms for women were expensive not because of the manufacture of them, but because they required a visit to a physician, whereas condoms were really mass-produced. And I, I can't give you figures, but the cost of them was trivial compared to the cost of other forms of birth control.
2: Or the cost of not having birth control. Right. Yeah. Totally. The
0: costliest cost right. of all.
5: <laughs> of course, the thing for men is widely available and cheaper. She has to go to the doctor and be like, I'm having sex and have right. him like, stare at her.
3: Condemn yeah. her. Yeah. So the thing that's crazy about this whole story is that throughout this whole time period, condoms, actually all forms of contraception, were deemed illegal by the Comstock Act of 1873. So all these advancements we're talking about, they happened on the black market. Oh, wow. So if you remember Julius Schmidt, the, the sausage casing condom guy, um, he started making condoms in his home, like many other people. And in 1890, his house was raided and he was arrested for making condoms. What? This happened. Yeah. Oh, my God.
0: This sounds like, how has this not been made into a great movie yet? You know what I
3: mean? <laughs> <laughs> the Condom King.
2: You know, this actually reminds me of, of this book by Rebecca Traister, um, this journalist. She wrote a book called All the Single Ladies, which is about the history of um, the ability of women to be single and not, not married in the United States. Um and she points to that this this ability for women to live unmarried has not only given rise to independence and freedom and happiness, but is also sort of saved marriage as something that you can do happily. Um, but the reason that uh, marriage has become something that is not necessarily like an economic and social necessity for women um, is access to birth control.
1: Hmm. Right. And that's and that's like a big part of the story of how demographic transition happened in the United States where, you know, like today our birth rate is lower than our death rate. And yeah, like we've talked about how population discourse is really toxic and tricky. But but when population levels stabilize because of we're giving women economic freedom, it seems like a pretty good win win.
3: Yeah. Yep. So basically my argument, the latex (laughs) condom paved the way for American freedom and saved the institution of marriage.
5: Totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> Love freedom. Love it. Love economic freedom.
1: I thought I thought we would just come back in cold. Oh, that, that's fine. I think you should say welcome back. Welcome back.
5: Thank you for welcoming me, Sam. <laughs> I feel very welcome
1: here.
0: You're welcoming the audience. are <laughs> <laughs> welcoming the listeners. What? Oh.
5: So I have a very different story than the rest of you. Yay.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, it's the spice of life.
5: So I have a story for you that's about pirates and the metric system.
1: Mm.
5: <laughs> Specifically, why we do not use the metric system in the United States, though actually we do, and I will get back to that in a second. Thank God. Thank you, Erica. <laughs> <laughs> so when the United States gained its independence from England in the 18th century and became its own nation... One of the very first orders of business for the new government was to adopt some kind of system of weights and measures, because how can you develop an economy and trade ties without some kind of standardization? So we actually had to make a conscious choice about this because we really had, as you might imagine, inherited a real mishmash of metric units.
6: Different states are using different standards. There were Dutch standards. Certain parts of the country were using Spanish standards, There were English standards. Uh, even states using uh, what they considered the British standards were actually different from state to state. So what was uh, a pound or a gallon in one state could actually be different from another state.
5: Sounds like a mess. It is a huge mess.
6: Boo, America.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I was actually reading that some of the traders um, in New York, they were buying fabric using one measurement and selling it. A different but calling it the same thing so i guess oh, that sounds know, it's
2: deliberate brilliant. exactly yeah. mm-hmm.
5: so the man you just heard there that's keith martin he's a research librarian at the national institutes of standards and technology which is a government agency charged with ensuring and promoting measurement standards now you can see why i was very easy to get this guy on the phone <laughs> i just gonna uh, well cut that part out but i am just say like
1: do we have to cut that
5: out <laughs> he sounds great he's yeah. such a nice man yeah anyway Weights and measures were actually so important that it's actually in the Constitution. Article 1 gives the government the power to set weights and measures. And George Washington, in a speech to Congress in 1790, he lays out what he sees as really the most important issues facing the new country. The first is defense. The second is the economy. And the third is weights and measures. God. So something needs to be done. And France thinks it has the answer.
6: So they sent an emissary, Joseph Dombey. He was a French botanist and a physician uh, to the United States to meet with uh, the Secretary of State uh, at that time, who was Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and Dombey had two goals of meeting Jefferson. Uh, one, he was uh, there to negotiate for agricultural trade between the two countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, uh, he was bringing with him uh, two new standards uh, of weights and measures uh, from France, a meter bar for length and a kilogram for weight or mass. Uh, and he was going to present those to to Jefferson.
1: So this was basically like the the very birth of the metric system. And this guy was going to try to convince Jefferson that it, it was a good idea and, and then get him to like lobby Congress for it, right?
5: That's right. Jefferson, he loved France and French culture. So he... He probably would have gone for it. And not to mention that the system came out of the French Enlightenment, which is basically music to Jefferson's science, science-loving <laughs> years.
6: Those ever-loving science years. Totally. Um, Jefferson would have been very receptive uh, to this. Jefferson himself was a Francophile.
5: So, Dombe, he gets on a ship. He's on his way to Philadelphia.
1: Does he have bodyguards? I like the idea that he's accompanied by bodyguards to, like, get a <laughs> meter bar. In a gold box or something.
5: Completely surrounded by security. Yeah. Unfortunately, even if he was surrounded by security, he could not, they could not protect him from the weather. <clears throat> a storm blew in, and it blew them way, way, way off course, actually, all the way down to the Caribbean. And who's down in the Caribbean? Pirates. <laughs> and in particular... These were British privateers who had the approval of London to harass other countries' shipping. They had a
3: harassment permit? <laughs> <laughs> they
6: did. They captured Dombey's ship. Um, they discovered that Dombey was a French aristocrat and a, a member of his government and of some value to them. So they took Dombey prisoner on the island of, of Montserrat with the intention of uh, holding him for ransom from the French government.
5: Now, unfortunately for the pirates and the metric system... Dombey died in prison. So the meter bar and kilogram never made it to the United States. Oh, my God. And it would be another century before we officially went metric.
1: Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Last sentence there.
5: Just wait. (laughs) So the U.S. really starts to move toward metric in the mid-19th century for the export market. But we actually went officially went metric. This was surprising to me, too. In 1893, because British standards that had kind of been more commonly used were very poorly made and they were not based on science an inch was defined as three barley corns lined up end to end <laughs>
2: wait uh, barley everyone, corns do
0: you know that's how subway standard, determines guys. their six inch sandwiches <laughs> they just measure up the barley corns and they <laughs> cut the
1: sandwich <laughs> one by one
5: 18 barleycorns. <laughs> A mile was a 1,000 paces of a Roman legion. How
1: do you find a Roman legion to pace off your mile?
5: That's exactly it. You can't measure a mile these days without a Roman legion around. So the U.S. in the 1890s, the U.S. decides it really wants a physical standard. And the French standards were stable and scientific, unlike those British ones. And so we do actually use the metric system here, even though we use the word foot. Uh, Keith actually told me the standard of measure for it is actually based off of a meter. Hmm. But if Dombey's ship had not been blown off course, and he had not been captured by pirates, we would have been an early adopter of the metric system. So this I submit to you as an, ev- as an event, a small thing that has had an enormous influence on our weights and measures.
3: His small,
5: small death, <laughs> a nudge of wind.
1: We should all, in our daily lives, just do our little part to convert more things to the metric system,
3: well, just like this topic, progress is small mm-hmm. well,
2: is it
1: <laughs> I don't know Wait, so it's so it's
3: it's
2: I, I i don't have a, a topic for this because um I know that like the, the judge is our audience um but i I tried to find a nudge, like I thought about you know, the weather on D-Day and how they thought, like, one group thought it was going to rain and another didn't, and and that's why, like, the Allied invasion worked and the fact that Hitler was asleep on the morning of D-Day and he was the one who could release, like, some of the panzer divisions and they couldn't wake him up because everyone was terrified of Hitler. But then I was like, well, that, like... That That's only like D-Day. There were all these other factors. You can't isolate one thing that would make D-Day work. And then I even thought of the birth control thing. That's why I had this book with me. But then I was like, well, the whole conversation around birth control and like you have the like industrialization. That's a whole element. You can't I- isolate any of these things. And the ball bearing. I bet that someone else would have invented something else. Or like you can't isolate it from the like the thrust of the Industrial Revolution in general. Also, maybe Jefferson wouldn't have been able to convince, like, the rest of the whole group. Was Jefferson, like, that popular anyway? I don't know. I just, I really feel that this is stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I hate this premise. So I just, I didn't do it.
1: I would like to point out to our audience members who are not in the studio that Justine has a stack of literature in front of her. I looked
2: through all these books, but then I was like, well, like... It it just no story that comes from one small event. It all is connected to the rest of the world. You can't... This is like a TED Talk of a prompt.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's
2: an insult, by the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, Justine's right. You know. I don't think Justine's wrong. <laughs> right. But 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 I had fun.
5: <laughs> <laughs> That's what matters most.
2: I don't know. The tiny thing that changed the world is like the premise of like a million in one books and, and again TED Talks and I just I I usually just find it Reductive. I find it reductive. Yeah, but also I'm being like a, a podcast Grinch right now. So, <laughs>
0: well, well, I think that sh- this should be a, a legitimate option for people who are choosing between the ball bearing, the latex condom, the wind sa- uh, pirate the death
5: system. U.S. use of the metric system and
0: the, the fourth option, which is this is stupid, <laughs> and reducing things
1: to a single event is dumb. I'm down with that. And I would like mine. Can mine be in there, too? No. I mean, no. 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 <laughs> the website that saved a billion gallons of gas? That's so, that was the anecdote. I'd, yeah, be, I'd yeah. be down
2: with that. We could <laughs> put that on. Let's throw him a bone.
1: Agree to disagree. <laughs> You can vote on which of these small things that had a large impact was your favorite at our website outsideinradio.org. You can also vote on Twitter where we will pin a poll to the top of our feed, and if you're on Facebook, you can join our Facebook group and not only cast your vote there but also join the discussion about which nudge was the best or which nudge we should have discussed. And yes, that means it is possible to vote more than once, but frankly, the stakes are pretty low. This is not the first the nation primary so vote early vote often and thanks for listening
5: a small thing like
2: you literally take using like size small
1: yes yeah ball bearings are literally
0: i was yeah i was going
1: with literally small yeah yeah no it's it's, it's there are no rules there are no rules Yeah. there's also no rules as to how this is judged Ugh. you guys are showing me there
2: mean. are rules <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, Sarah Ernst, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray is director of pirate-themed episode tie-in memorabilia. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music was made by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.